All right, good morning. All right, so last week, um, we officially finished the book of Ruth. And if you looked at your bulletins, we're still in the book of Ruth. Um, so if you're here last week, you are let in on the uh, family secret that uh, because we've gotten so much good feedback from the, the series, I wanted to labor a little bit longer. And so I asked for some suggestions. And uh, we had a sheet full of three suggestions. And uh, I, we're going to cover the, the, the first two this morning. Um, so one of my uh, spiritual gifts and curses is fitting uh, 10 pounds of sermon into a five-pound bag. So I uh, hope you're ready for that this morning. But I think it'll be good because uh, the, the two topics, the two questions that were asked um, on that sheet, I think, uh, fit well together and really answer one another. They'll be up on the screen. Number one, how do we handle bitterness from our circumstances? And so also, how do we walk by faith? And not by sight. So this is going to be a sermon of two parts and um, two expositions, one Old Testament, one, one New Testament. Uh, we're going to look at a lot of lessons from Ruth, and uh, then we're going to apply them and uh, kind of flesh them out through the gospel in 2 Corinthians. Uh, and we're going to be working from a thesis th- th- this morning. And I want you to write this down, remember it tattooed on your eyelids uh, because we need to remember this often. And the thesis is this. Our circumstances on earth will change. Guaranteed. Uh, And sometimes they change for the better. Sometimes they don't. If you've lived long enough, you know it's usually the latter. Circumstances change in our time on earth. Sometimes favorably, sometimes not. Number two, Christ does not change. And so if we are in him, our identity does not change either. See where I'm going with this? Because number three, we should view our circumstances through Christ and not Christ through our circumstances. That's really what we're going to be leaning into this morning. Because if you are a believer in this room, you know how true all of those things are. Our lives change. And as Jesse said, Our circumstances often are hurtful. The people in our lives are often hurtful. Most people are, you know, what's the um, Sour Patch Kids, you know, who are like, they are really sweet until they slap you in the face and they can be really sour and then they're really sweet again. And we're that way. We change. Our circumstances change. This is why we gather every week because our Savior does not change. And that's what I want to see this morning that... um, our identity is in him. And so, uh, because this is so important, uh, and I think everyone in this room will really identify with this sermon, I apologize in advance if I go long. Um, I'm going to try not to, but it may happen. Um, so, what does this have to do with Ruth? Um, and getting feedback from you and talking through the uh, series, um, I think most of us can relate more to Naomi than to Ruth. Why? Um, we don't really get Ruth's disposition described. But it's on full display. Ruth is humble. Ruth is loyal. Ruth is hardworking. And she is just this paragon of virtue all the way through. But Naomi, her flaws are clearly on display, just like the rest of us. You know, like that Naomi, I can relate to her. Ruth, not so much. I may have Ruth, uh, this section is important to, to drill down on. You know, while Naomi never loses, or excuse me, Ruth never loses her composure, um, never complains, she rolls with the uh, punches, the first half of the book, Naomi's doing the complete opposite. And so I want to lean into her lowest moment. And so this morning's sermon is going to be an excursus. And so I know half of you probably opened the dictionary app on your phone to figure out what the heck is an excursus. Those of you who read commentaries know what an excursus is. So think about the word excursion. Um, If if you go on a hike, uh, you go through a a, a trail, you've got a goal. i got to get from this point to uh, this point in this amount of time. But along the way, you're like, that's interesting. I wish I had more time to go over there. Oh, that side trail might be interesting. So think about an excursus or an excursion as a day hike. Um, we've already made our way through the journey. We've gone beginning to end to the book. Now we're going to kind of retrace our steps a little bit and explore in the bushes. 
you know, that, that, that thing over there, that, that, that was kind of helpful. We should drill down on it. Um, so that's what we're doing here. And just to recap, uh, chapter 1 has three main scenes. There is a scene of death. Happens in Moab. There's a scene of turning, uh, returning, repenting that happens on the way from Moab back to Bethlehem. And then the third scene is the arrival, the, the actual return in Bethlehem. So verses 1 through 5, that uh, first scene, they went to Moab because they were seeking better circumstances. They went to Moab thinking that the grass is greener. I'll be happy if I go to Moab and I get what I want. That didn't turn out well because everything, everything just turns to death. So the ladies are on their way, their, their, their way back because in verse 6, something changes. They change their, their trajectory because the circumstances change. Verse 6, then she arose with her daughter, daughters-in-law to return to the country of, from the country of Moab, for she had heard that the fields of Moab, that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. So the Lord is calling them back. The Lord is reminding them of his goodness. They went off on their own seeking better circumstances. The Lord reminds them through circumstances how good he is. And um, so they uh, turn back. They begin to have a conversation. And we get to see a bit of Naomi's disposition along the way. She doesn't really have a positive outlook for her daughters-in-law in Bethlehem. She thinks they should stay in Moab. She gives that kind of counsel. But look at the latter half of verse 13. She says, no, my daughters, you know, when she's trying to convince them to stay with their families, it is exceedingly bitter for me, for your sake, that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. So she is identifying herself with her bitterness, and she is identifying it with the Lord. It is because of the Lord. And so when we return, that theme, or when they return to Bethlehem, that theme comes up again. Um, so it offers us some, some lessons. There's going to be quite a few. Um, I really limited myself to seven lessons. Um, I did the best I could. Um, but I want to read verses 19 through, uh, through uh, 21. And like we do in our Bible study, I want you to pay attention to repeated words. What things are repeated, because that's where our, our, our lessons are. Uh, what personal things are repeated. Um, Bethlehem is repeated. That's an application for another day. Um, but keep that in mind as I read 19 through 21. Or 22, actually, excuse me. Um, yeah, no, we're just going to read 21. So the two of them went until they came to Bethlehem. And when they came to Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the woman said, is this Naomi? She said to them, do not call me Naomi, call me Mara, for the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full, and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi when the Lord has testified against me and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me? Let's pray. Our Lord, the Almighty God, the everlasting, the true and living, the beginning and the end, the highest and the utmost, you are indeed God. You are indeed sovereign over all things. There is nothing outside of your control. Yet you are perfectly holy and perfectly good in a way that we can never understand all of your providences and the circumstances of our lives still maintain your holiness and your goodness and your perfection and still are carried out for the good of your people. Lord, forgive us when we put ourselves in your place and seek to understand it to our own satisfaction. Help us to trust you, Lord. Help us to look to you and find our identity in you. And so that we would have this identity, you sent your son. He would be the man we could not be, the man we needed to be, the man who stands in our place as our covenant head. The man who lived perfectly, died unjustly, 
but sacrificially and completely for his people, that we would walk in him in newness of life as he is risen from the grave, that we would walk as him as our identity, him as our victory. Lord, help us to see the world, our circumstances, and the people in our lives through Christ. And in his name we pray, amen. So we're going to work in um, descending order on repeated words. If you've been paying attention, something was mentioned seven times in there. Anyone find it? The word, the little word, me. Let's read it again. Um, picking up in verse 20. Don't call me Mara. Call me, or excuse me, don't call me Naomi. Call me Mara. For the Almighty has dealt uh, very bitterly with me. I went away full and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi when the Lord has testified against me and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me? Uh, Any of our speech ever sound like that? Any of our prayers ever sound like that? In making everything about herself, she defines her identity according to her affliction. And in making everything about herself, she assumes that the Lord opposes her. This is lesson number one. We're going to put these up on the screen. How much we think of ourselves will shape how we view the Lord and will affect our walk with him. How much we think of ourselves will shape how we view the Lord and will affect our walk with him. So the number one thing we have to think about, do I struggle with bitterness? Do I struggle with resentment? Do I struggle with anger? Do I struggle with depression? Take into account how much am I thinking about myself versus thinking about the Lord. How much am I looking to myself versus looking to my God? Um, I love C.S. Lewis's definition of humility. Humility is not thinking less of yourself, putting yourself down, but thinking of yourself less. Humility is saying, he increases, I decrease. My hope, my identity is in him. Because, brothers and sisters, if we think about ourselves too much, we will struggle. There are many versions of the analogy of the ditches on both sides of the road. But pride is a ditch on both sides of the road. Thinking too highly of ourselves, thinking too much of ourselves, there are all kinds of rocks and uh, pitfalls and stone and and, and rubble that if we go off that side of the road, the road of self-reliance, it is going to be a bumpy road and it's going to be hard to get back. But the other side of pride, the other side of thinking of ourselves, that is a false humility. Because on that side is a quicksand of our own discouragement. That the more we struggle, the more we think of ourselves, the more we become the center of our story, the more we sink. And so, remember that as we go forward and remember that as you go forward in your life that how much we think about ourselves will shape and sometimes obscure us from seeing the Lord and will certainly affect our walk with him. So first thing she does wrong is thinks about herself too much. Um, Most of our problems could be solved if we stop thinking about ourselves too much. Number two, four times she speaks of the Lord. Do you notice how she speaks about him every time? Never once positively. She's not grateful. She doesn't thank him for, for food. She doesn't come back um, praising the Lord that she's still alive, that she has a companion in Ruth. We talked about this in the series, but she recognizes that God is sovereign. She recognizes that if something happens, it must come from the Lord. But she makes one fatal mistake. She forgets that God is good. Every time she speaks, for the Lord Almighty has dealt bitterly with me. I went away full, but the Lord has brought me back bitter. Why call me Naomi when the Lord testified against me and the Almighty brought about calamity upon me? Maybe we've been guilty of this. Maybe we haven't. But I know everyone in this room has been guilty of this. I know he's good theologically. Yes, he's good. Absolutely. 
But I look at someone else's life, I look at someone else's circumstance, and it seems like he's being good to them right now and not good to me. Anyone ever had that conversation? Anyone ever compare your particular circumstances to someone else? Like, I know God is, is, is good, but he's just taking a nap right now. And um, this other person who is making my life miserable, God just must not care, or he's, or he's too busy, or he's got more important things to do. So that leads us to lesson number two. Our God doesn't change even if our circumstances do. We have to remember that. Our God does not change even if our circumstances do. Because that leads us right along to, I'll give you a second to write that down, but that leads us right along to lesson number three. How we view the Lord will change how we view our circumstances. How we view the Lord will change how we view our circumstances. Because if we're assuming God is like us, and God is like our circumstances, we're going to fall in and out of favor with him. He's going to be a daisy of a God. He loves me, he loves me not. He loves me, he loves me not. That is not our God. Our God does not sleep. Our God does not slumber. He never stops being sovereign, and he never stops being good. I'm going to keep drawing that out as we go. Let's go to our next repeated word, um, Naomi. We're going to do a little word name study here. Naomi means pleasant. Mara means bitter. I want to talk to you about Mara for a moment because this is helpful when we think about bitterness. We kind of have to define it um, before we can deal with it. Number one, um, not number one, but firstly, bitter it expresses a condition. This word for bitter. It's... Um, it's a manner of life. It's a state of being. I want to give you an example. When Israel is in Egypt, look at uh, Exodus chapter 1. It'll be up on the screen. So they ruthlessly, the Egyptians to the Israelites, made the people of Israel work as slaves and made their lives bitter with hard service in mortar and in brick and in all kinds of work in the field. In all their work, they ruthlessly made them work as slaves. This Hebrew word for, for bitter is, is, is a condition. It is an attribute of the thing. This bitterness, this is a bitter life. The Israelites, after they get out, after they are, are um, redeemed and uh, rescued in the Exodus, they come to another bitter place in the wilderness. We won't go there, but Exodus 15, there's a spring, if any of you remember. Then you know the name of that spring? Mara. It is a bitter spring. It has a source underneath the ground that is welling up bitterness upon bitterness upon bitterness. And if you keep trying to drink from the same source, you're never going to have something to drink. It's not like this one's bitter and then the next one's going to be fresh. It has a deeper source. And in a person, so we've got a life, we've got a place. But this type of bitterness in a person is a continual feeling. It is a disposition. It is their own personal cloud. It is someone who is drinking from their own personal spring of bitterness, and they don't know how to stop. Naomi was self-centered. It began with her thinking about herself and her circumstances. She took on bitterness as, as an identity, and instead of her bitterness driving her to the Lord, she allowed it to drive a wedge between her and the Lord. There's a bit of a play on words here, too. Because when they say, is this Naomi? They're actually asking, is this pleasant? Is this what pleasant looks like? She was so bitter, it was on her face. Is this pleasant? So here's an honest question. Have you ever been so discouraged that you wanted to be known by your particular emotion? You ever wanted to change your, your, your name and have everybody call you by how you feel right now? This is Naomi. I, want, I, want my, I, I am so entrenched in my spring of bitterness, that's what you should call me. Because that's all I know. I'm drinking salt water by the gallon. Job 2. Um, 
Job is a great example of this. He had a fixation on bitterness. Uh, there are many places I could go in Job, but I want to look at a couple because this uh, illustrates it very well. Job uh, chapter 7, verse 11. Therefore, I will not restrain my mouth. I will speak in the anguish of my spirit. I will complain in the bitterness of my soul. I am bitter and I don't want to stop. You wonder why God is so heavy-handed with, with, with Job at the end of the book? Chapter 10, verse 1. He brings it up a notch. I loathe my life. I will give free utterance to my complaint. I speak in the bitterness of my soul. Same word here, Mara. I will say to God, do not condemn me. Let me know why you contend against me. Does it seem good to you to oppress, to despise the work of your hands and the favor and, and favor the designs of the wicked? Sounds like someone who knows that God is sovereign, but not that God is good. And in God's goodness and in God's providence, he prepared me to preach this message this morning. Because this week he put me in a situation with someone that I loved dearly that was especially disappointing and especially hurtful. And I have probably slept a total of nine hours the last three nights. And I have really had to work this out. I was preparing to preach this as something to be an encouragement to everyone else. And the Lord said, you're going to live this. Because what do we do when bitter circumstances come? What do we do when what, where we find our comfort and our hope apart from the Lord is turned upside down and makes us miserable? Is there an alternative to becoming a bitter person? I want to give you a different Hebrew word, this one, baka. So, baka is a mourning of the soul. Not a bitterness, but a mourning. A internal weeping. There's a godly type of bitterness, a humble, broken-hearted, crying out to the Lord. I want to give you three examples. Um, next book over, if you're in Ruth, 1 Samuel Chapter 1, verse 10. Hannah's story. Hannah lives with a uh, woman who likes to poke at her because she's better than, than, than her. She's got more children than her. Hannah has no children. She's brokenhearted over it. Does Hannah become bitter? Does she drink from a uh, well of bitterness? No, here's what she does. Verse 10. She was deeply distressed and she prayed to the Lord and wept bitterly. And she vowed a vow and said, O Lord of hosts, if you will indeed look on the affliction of your service, servant and remember me and not forget your servant, but will give to your servant a son, then I will give him to the Lord all the days of my life, and no razor shall touch his head. I'm going to give him a Nazarite vow. She took her bitterness and laid it before her God. She cried out from the weeping and mourning of her soul, and trusted God, and God answered her prayer. Next example, 2 Kings chapter 20. If you're moving, uh, 1 Samuel, 2 Samuel, 1 Kings, 2 Kings chapter 20. Hezekiah, another great example. 1 Kings chapter 20, verse 1. In those days, Hezekiah became sick. He was at the point of death. And Isaiah the prophet, the son of Amos, uh, came to him and said to him, Thus says the Lord, set your house in order, for you shall die, you shall not recover. You would cry for mama. His face to the wall and prayed to the Lord, saying, Now, O Lord, please remember how I have walked before you in faithfulness and with a whole heart, and have done what is good in your sight. And Hezekiah wept bitterly. And before Isaiah had gone out of the middle of the court, the word of the Lord came to him. Turn back. Say to Hezekiah, the leader of my people, thus says the Lord, the God of David your father, I have heard your prayer. I have seen your tears. Behold, I will heal you. On the third day, you shall go up to the house of the Lord 
and I will add 15 years to your life. Next one, Ezra. Uh, a few more books to the right. Israel is a uh, sinful people who needs to repent often. Um, good thing we have nothing to do with it. We're, we're nothing like that. Ezra realizes the sin of the people, that they are intermingling, intermarrying with the nations, which is leading them to idolatry. Look what Ezra does. Verse 10, while Ezra prayed and made confession, weeping and casting himself down before the house of God, a very great assembly of men, women, and children gathered him out of Israel, for the people wept bitterly. And Sennechiah and the, the uh, son of Jehiel, sorry, I didn't practice these names, and the son of Elam addressed Ezra. We have broken faith with our God, and we have married foreign women from the peoples of the land, but even now there is hope for Israel in spite of this. Infertility, sickness, sin, these are all very real human circumstances. They could all lead us to be bitter, but Hannah, Hezekiah, and Ezra led themselves, and Ezra led the people to go before the Lord. We can't avoid these things. These circumstances come. If you go into life thinking everything is going to go the way I, I, I planned, then you're going to be disappointed again, again, and again. But in each case, they did not blame God. They threw themselves before the mercy of God, and he heard them because he loves them, and he answered their prayers. Man, the Lord showed me what this looked like the last few nights. Having to go before him. Scrolling my phone certainly didn't work. Reading sometimes worked. Uh, getting up and going to the other room, all these other things. I'll get to more of that in a moment. Um, but prayer. Lots and lots of prayer. Every time a thought comes into my mind, Lord, help me. Lord, deliver me from this. Lord, help me to forgive. Help me to not stop, th help me to stop thinking about myself. Help me to look to you. Now we get to lesson number four. Prayer reminds us that the Lord is the solution of our bitterness, not the source. Prayer reminds us that the Lord is the solution of our bitterness, not the source. And right along with that, bitterness is a blessing if it drives us to the Lord. Praise God that we would be bitter if it would draw us closer to him. But it becomes sin when it drives us away. It becomes sin when we lose sight of Christ and make that our identity. When bitterness has your number, it's like they've got you on speed dial trying to sell you a car warranty. Again and again and again, every time you try to think about something else or do something else, what about me? What about me? What about this situation? What about what happened to me? And it is so easy to see the world through that particular situation. So, this morning, let's take an, a self-assessment. How often do you complain versus giving thanks? How often do you focus on what is wrong with your life or your circumstances, rather than praising God for what is right? How often do you pout versus pray? Can you praise the Lord in difficulty? Because brothers and sisters, difficulty is coming. And for many of you, difficulty is here right now. For many of you, this is hitting really close to home because you are holding on to something. And no, I don't know your stories. No, I'm not tapping your, your, your phone. I know because you're human and you're sitting here. And every one of us has struggled at times or maybe this time with something we are holding on to. And we don't think God is good enough or powerful enough to answer our prayers and to heal us and pull us out of bitterness because honestly, bitterness is, is a, a pacifier. It's a safety blanket. I'm familiar with this. I'm comfortable with this. I, I know what to expect from this. When you are afflicted, discouraged, and tempted toward bitterness, 
what do you do? Do you stay there? Do you play that same scene, the same situation, the same fill-in-the-blank again and again and again in your head and wonder why you can't get out? Now we're going to get into more of what you can do. Number five, bitterness is a state of mind, but so is joy. Bitterness is a state of mind, but so is joy. Joy also is a sustained disposition. Lesson number six. Get enough time to get number five? (laughs) I'll leave number five up there. Go back to number five. Bitterness is a state of mind, but so is joy. You're welcome. Number six. Joy is not rooted in our circumstances. It is rooted in the Lord. If you look for joy in what happens to you, you will always be disappointed. If you look for If if you look for satisfaction in your circumstances, you will find happiness, which is fleeting and momentary, but you will not find joy. Be sustained by our God. Joy is only granted by our God. Because joy, as we know, is one of the fruits of the Spirit. One of the fruit of the Spirit. This comes up in the life of the believer. You know where it lands? Right after love. Because when you have received the love of Christ, he gives you joy and salvation. You see him and you you love him. And it leads us to joy. We have joy in the Lord if we are in Christ. We don't have to find it. We have it. But we do have to pursue it. We do have to work it out. It is a muscle. We grow in joy by looking to and loving Christ. So we can pray, as we mentioned a moment ago. We can go to God's word. Because in God's word, we learn. We grow closer. We know him. We love him and we find joy in him. One of the things that fascinated me in my study, I just did a you know, uh, just a search of joy in, the, in the, the book of Psalms. 47 references to joy in the book of Psalms. All attributed to the Lord, the joy of the Lord, but over half of them are either associated with singing or shouting. I love that. Shouting. Uh, can reform people do that? <laughs> Sandra, say amen, please. Amen. That's right. If it is good enough for David, if this is what our salvation should do to us, that when we remember who our God is, remember what he's given us, our lips should pour forth in praise. We should not be able to contain how good our God is. We are wretches. We are dead in trespasses and sins. Our God has saved us. Can we shout hallelujah? Hallelujah. Amen. I want to show you just a few psalms. Psalm 30, 4 and 5. Sing praises to the Lord, O you his saints, and give thanks to his holy name. Stop there. Sing praises to the Lord, O you his saints, and and give thanks to his holy name. This sounds like... Everything's going good. This is a good day psalm. Look at the next verse. For his anger is but for for a moment, and his favor is for a lifetime. Weeping may tarry for the night, but joy comes in the morning. This is a prayer during God's anger being poured out on us for our sin. And us weeping and needing reconciliation, but knowing, guaranteeing that joy comes in the morning. Psalm 51, the famous psalm of David, after he commits adultery, kills Uriah, the the husband of Bathsheba. His sin is brought before him. And uh, Nathan draws him aside, gives him this little piece of insight that you are the sinner. Here's how David responds. The man who can pray like this can also shout in response to his salvation. 51 verse 7, purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. 
Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Sometimes it's good that our bones are broken. Sometimes it's good that we hurt down to our core if it forces us to cry out to the Lord like this. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. This is something only God can do. We cannot muster up a right heart. We cannot muster up a new spirit. We can't bring ourselves into new life. And even those who are in Christ who have new life. We are so dependent on the one who has given it to us. And this is a good prayer even for believers. Our wicked hearts need to be sanctified and cleansed. This is a process that the Lord brings us through. He goes on, cast me not away from your presence. Take not your Holy Spirit from me. Praise God for the gospel. Praise God for the finished work of Christ and the guarantee of the Holy Spirit that if you are in Christ, he will not cast you off. He will not take his spirit from you. As we're going to see later in 2 Corinthians, it is a guarantee of our salvation. Not a certainty as long as you act right. A guarantee that he will not take his spirit from us. But this is the point. I'm working up to this. Restore Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. Brothers and sisters, this is how we respond to the bitterness, the anger of the Lord, the result of our own sin. We recognize our frailty. We recognize his goodness and his sovereignty. One last one. I love this one. Psalm 71, verse 23. You get two for one here. My lips will shout with joy when I sing praises to you, my soul also, which you have redeemed. There is no greater source of joy and rejoicing than remembering our salvation, remembering our redemption. And I told you earlier, there are many, many things I tried to go to sleep. Um, But putting on the worship playlist and letting it play I slept like a baby from 5 a.m. to 7.30. <laughs> and the Lord has carried me through. Um, but what, I mean, and let's just, let's just stop there for a moment. How many of us, there is something to just singing, to just hearing praises, to just being reminded through song that just plucks that spot in our heart that, that thoughts or actions can't get to. It just... As they say, it just hits different. This is why we implement singing in every one of our gatherings. We don't want to lose the, the uh, response of our heart, but we also want to train ourselves. That when we learn something good, let's praise God. Let's respond in song. When we learn something hard, when we're convicted, let's praise God. Uh, William Cooper as one of the greatest hymn writers and poets that the church has ever produced. This man is a lyrical genius. If you read his poetry, it is so thoughtful, it is so well written, it is so profound. And he struggled his entire life with some of the deepest depression we have ever seen. His personal confidant and mentor was John Newton, the writer of Amazing Grace. And he could not console him to the day that he died. He lived in his own personal cloud. But when you read his writings, he never stopped crying out to the Lord. He continually brought it back to the Lord. I want to read from a couple of his hymns, verse 3, 4, and 5, from God Moves in a Mysterious Way. See if any of this rings a bell with what we're talking about. God Moves in a Mysterious Way. Uh, This is uh, verse 3. Ye fearful saints, fresh courage take. The clouds ye so much dread are big with mercy and shall break in blessings on your head. Mm, We could sit there for the rest of the day. Verse 4. Judge not the Lord by feeble sense, but trust him for his grace. Behind a frowning providence, he hides a smiling face. Verse 5. His purposes will ripen fast unfolding every hour the bud may have a bitter taste but sweet will be the flower yep 
Uh, but going even a step further and even more deeper into discouragement and a great look to Christ is, oh, for a closer walk with God. We're going to read through this, this entire one. Oh, for a closer walk with God, a calm and heavenly frame, a light to shine upon the road that leads me to the Lamb. Where is the blessedness I knew when I first saw the Lord? Where is the soul-refreshing view of Jesus and his word? What peaceful hours I once enjoyed, how sweet their memories still, but they have left an aching void the world can never fill. Return, O holy dove, return, sweet messenger of rest. I hate the sin that made thee mourn and drove thee from thy breast, from my breast. The dearest idol I have known, whate'er that idol be, help me to tear it from thy throne and worship only thee. So shall my walk be close with God, calm and serene my frame, so purer light shall mark the road that leads me to the Lamb. Amen. So number seven, our last lesson for this section. When difficulty comes, we can choose to drink from the spring of bitterness, or we can come to the Lord. Look to Christ for living water. When difficulty comes, we can choose to drink from the spring of bitterness, or we can come to the Lord, because He is living water. So let's use a common phrase, common analogy. When the Lord gives you lemons, you can eat the lemon, pucker up and sour up, up, up your face, and keep thinking things are going to get better. Or you can sweeten it with fellowship with him and make lemonade. And so thankfully God's word puts that all in perspective as we get into the second part of our uh, sermon. We laid a lot of the foundation at the beginning. But here's where we put these lessons into perspective, into our walk with Christ. When you are discouraged, when you're having a hard time, 2 Corinthians is a great book. 2 Corinthians is the book of new covenant comfort. Isaiah 40 is the passage on old covenant comfort, but new covenant comfort. What we have in Christ. Let's just uh, turn, uh, this is not going to be on the screen because I want you to turn there. I want you to find this. Because when you are struggling, when you are bitter, when you don't know where to go, Remember 2 Corinthians. So you're going to go to the New Testament, you're going to go to the book of Paul, books of Paul. They go in descending order from largest to least, so Romans, 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians. 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 3 and 4, briefly. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in our affliction so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort of with which we ourselves are comforted by God. That is the purpose of this book. Find comfort in Christ so that you will be comforted and you can comfort one another. Brothers and sisters, that's where we're going in this, this kind of application portion. Now I want you to turn to our reading in chapter 4. I love the, the, this passage. Um, if you were in the hospital, if you are struggling with something, this is, this is usually where I go. There's some of you in this room who I have opened this uh, scripture with and watch the countenance of your face change because of how well Paul, through the Holy Spirit, understands our condition. I want to start in verse 7. 2 Corinthians 4, verse 7. But we have this treasure. What is the, the treasure? A life transformed by the gospel. We have this treasure in jars of clay. What is clay? It is brittle. It breaks. It doesn't last. Why? To show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. Why does God leave us in these bitter jars of clay? So that we remember he's God and we need him. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not driven to despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. Always carrying in the, in, in the body the death of Christ so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. What does that mean? If we have died with Christ, he is always with us. His death to our sin. We also carry the life of Christ. His resurrection to our eternal life. That is who we are. Christ has died. Christ has risen. So have we. So when you remembered of how frail you are, remembered Christ is not frail. 
For we who live are always being given over to death. Mortification. We put the old man to death. We put that bitterness to the side. For Jesus' sake. So that the life of Jesus, the, the, the vivification, putting on Christ, putting off the no, old, putting on the new, may be manifested in our mortal flesh. So death is at work in us, but life in you. Since we have the same spirit of faith according to what has been written, I believe and so I spoke, we also believe and so we also speak. Brothers and sisters, we are united by the same faith. Knowing what is that faith, what is our hope when we get to walking by faith in a moment? What does it mean to walk by faith? What is our faith? That he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with the Lord Jesus and bring us with you into his presence. That is what it means to walk by faith. What is our faith? Our faith let me just, break, let me just um, you know, break your picture of faith. We are not saved or maintained by faith itself. Many people have faith in many things. We are saved by our faith and the object of our faith. Our faith is in the one who raised Jesus from the dead and said if we trust him, he will also raise us from the dead and bring us to him. For it is all for your sake, so that as grace extends to more and more people, it may increase thanksgiving to the glory of God. So we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. So when you get to this point, and you put all of life into perspective, when you're bitter, when you're disappointed, when you're discouraged, when you're you're tired, when you're stupid, when you're sinful, whatever you do, if you are in Christ, we do not lose heart. This outer self is wasting away. Every day we wake up, we're one, one day closer to death. And that terrifies people if you don't know Christ. But if you do, verse 17, for an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison, as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient. Our circumstances change. But the things that are unseen are eternal. Our God does not. That's why when we get into chapter 5, it's a continuation. For we know that if the tent that our earthly home, um, if the tent that is our earthly home is destroyed, what, what is the tent? Same as the jar. This thing that we're, you know, how long do you keep a tent? Not too long. Um, but this, this tent, this tabernacle, this dwelling, once it's destroyed, we have a building from God. A house not made with hands, eternal in the heavenlies. And then he goes on. For this tent, for in this tent we groan, longing to put on or be clothed in a heavenly dwelling. We long for a glorified body. If indeed by putting it on we may not be found naked. We don't want to stand before the Lord and say, I never knew you. Him say, I never knew you. We want to be with him to be sure we'll be with him. We want to see him. For while we are still in this tent, we groan, being burdened. Not that we'd be unclothed, but that we'd be further clothed. Meaning, you have put on Christ, continue to put on Christ, grow in him. To assuage your groaning. So that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. This is such a common human frustration. How often do we groan? How often do we long in our earthly bodies, in our earthly home, this sin-stained tent? How often do we long for a heavenly one? Verse 5. He who has prepared us for this very thing is God, who has given us the Spirit as a guarantee. God has prepared us for eternity. He has promised us eternity. Therefore, he has not left us alone. That's what Jesus told us. I have given you my spirit, and my spirit is the guarantee. He is the seal of your salvation. He is your comfort. You have joy because you have the spirit who resides within you, just like you have love and peace. Verse 6, so we are always of good courage. Man, I wish we were. We know that while we're at home in the body, we are away from the Lord. Yes and amen. We are always in good courage. Why? 
Because we have an eternal perspective. We know where our home is. We are looking to Christ. And here is the uh, cure for your obsession with your circumstances. Look to Christ. Have an eternal perspective. If you are looking more at this tent, this dwelling place, versus the dwelling place of God, you'll always be disappointed. You'll always be let down. We fix our eyes on heaven. As he says, for we walk by faith, not by sight. This is not our home. The way that this is, this is uh, written here is like we survive here by faith, not by sight. If we walk by what we could see, we would be lamenting all the time. But we create this idea in our head that everything on earth is supposed to feel good and supposed to look good. Where do we get that from? Scripture doesn't tell us that. A lot of bad preaching, a lot of bad theology, and a lot of mixing worldly wisdom in with, the, in with um, moralism. But the scriptures tell Jesus that you will have tribulation. But I have gone to prepare a place for you. You may have trials, but I have given you rest. Of course we would rather be with Christ, but he has us here. That is why we are of good courage, because we walk by faith. How do we walk by faith? We look to the resurrected one and the promise of our resurrection. We look to his life and our life in him. This is why we are of good courage. This is how we can be of good courage. Look to him, not ourselves. The one who has run the race before us. The one for his joy set before him was the cross. How can our joy not be him? But let's be honest, walking by faith is hard. Because we have a trust problem. We don't trust each other. We're not worthy of trust anyway, but we have a hard time trusting the Lord. Just like Elimelech and Naomi and the whole family didn't trust the Lord in Israel. They had to go to Moab. It is easier to trust what we can see. It's easier to walk by, by, by sight. Cultural gospel, secular gospel 101. Seeing is believing. How's that working out for you? But our God is immortal, invisible, only wise. Seeing is not believing. But we are given eyes to see with the Spirit. We walk not because of our faith, but because of who our faith is in. And we walk by faith in Christ. But let's look at the other side of that for a moment and getting into our final applications here. The enemy of our joy and the fuel, the fuel of our bitterness is walking by sight. The enemy of our joy and the fuel of our bitterness is walking by sight. Because that I can understand. That relates to me. Look at those in your life that you know. Maybe it's you. How often do you go up and down on the seesaw of your circumstances? He loves me. He loves me not. Maybe it's more like a roller coaster. Maybe you're doing flips all the time. How many people are identifying themselves with the circumstances of their life? what they see in the world, what they see on the news and and, and in current events. It's exhausting. We cannot look to ourselves and to the world for joy because it's always changing, it's always fleeting. There is one source of joy. This is the equivalent of a boat captain who's trying to navigate the journey in front of him by all the waves. He is trying to adjust by what is right in front of him. If you don't have a fixed point, if you can't navigate the stars, if you can't look to the lighthouse, you look at his GPS after after that trip, he's going to be all over the place. How many of us go through life like that? I'm dodging this wave, I'm dodging this wave, I'm dodging this wave, I'm dodging this wave. We're looking right in front of us. We are navel gazing. We see only ourselves in our own circumstances when we have a north star, when we have an eternal home with the eternal God who took on flesh for us. And so I want to ask you this morning, how often do you see the eternal through the lens of the temporal? 
Meaning, do you put on your earth-colored glasses or your Tim-colored glasses or your Raphael-colored glasses and see God through them? Or are you able to see uh, your circumstances in light of eternity? Because I guarantee you, if you have your me-colored glasses on and you see eternity through that, that is going to project your feelings upon God. And that is going to reflect how you view God. This is why we have an eternal focus. This is why we remember gospel promises. This is why we remember that Christ is victorious. This is why we remember the resurrection. This is why we remember the ascension and Him reigning in glory. Because every time we look to the throne of grace, every time we remember our victorious Savior, we remember that the battle has been won. We remember that he's victorious over sin and brokenness and bitterness and death. And we remember that we are more than conquerors in him. I've never been to war. But I can imagine, I'm pretty sure, that when the bullets start flying and the bombs start exploding and all you can smell is blood and gunpowder, that's pretty overwhelming. That's all you, that must be all you can think about in the moment. I just don't want to die. I don't want this to happen to me. Your senses are just overwhelmed at the point, at this point. But what if that soldier was promised victory? What if that soldier was guaranteed from his commanding officer that he would make it home safe and receive a commendation? He could roll with the punches. Those bullets would seem less final. They'd seem temporary because he knows he's victorious. Our, how often are our circumstances just like this? And our flesh is overwhelmed with the sounds and the sights and the smells of battle. And they drown out the victory cry of our Savior and our Captain. If you let them drown out his voice, they will most certainly make you bitter. And so I must ask you, does the smoke of the battlefield cloud your view of Christ? Do you remember the good news, the victory of the resurrection, the promise of glory, the hope of life everlasting? That he who began a good work in you will finish it. He who reconciled you to himself on the cross will reconcile all things in his name. And we will reign with him forever. So just finally here. What are the solutions that we have talked about so far to bitterness? It's nothing radical. I didn't tell you anything you don't know already. I don't tell you anything we don't talk about and do every week. The simple means of grace that point us to joy in Christ. Prayer, singing, reading. And don't forget talking to one another encouraging one another. Be a joyful person in our lives. Surround yourself with them. Brothers and sisters, that is why we are here. That is why we gather. We gather weekly and often more often because we need to be remembered of the joy of our salvation because we're sinners, because we're afflicted, because we're bitter, because we fall short. Preaching sounds better when we're together. Prayer is better when we're together. Singing is definitely better when we're together. <laughs> it is not the same from the couch. This is why we need the body of Christ. This is why it is a church. It is a gathering. The Lord has brought us together to find our joy and to walk with him next to one another. And just a final challenge. How many people do I know that when things start going wrong, the first thing they do is withdraw? When they're discouraged, they stay home, and they give the enemy a field day. You give the enemy full run of your thoughts and your feelings. You become your own worship director. You will be drawn to what you feel, not what you need. You will put on your bitterness playlist and put it on repeat. That is why we need to come together. Because praise God, we're not all bitter at the same time. We need to gather. We need each other. And so, saints, as we approach the table, remember this. Our identity is in our Savior, not our circumstances. He is good, 
at all times to his people. We know that through the love of the Father, the sacrifice of the Son, and the guarantee of the Spirit. This is why we can walk in faith and walk in joy. Why? Because he walks with us and we walk with him. And so, brothers and sisters, if you are in Christ, this table is a table of joy. Because it is a sign of what is guaranteed to us through the plan of the Father, the finished work of the Son, and the seal of the Spirit. So I'll give you a few moments to prepare yourself for the tables. Deacons, you can come forward, and then I'll give us our direction in a moment.